Welcome to ETF Working Lunch, an ETF.com podcast in partnership with women in ETFs. We get together every other week with some of the smartest women in this business and we talk shop. I'm Cynthia Murphy at ETF.com. And this week, we're going to be talking about investment outlooks with Liz Young, head of investment strategy at SoFi. Welcome, Liz. Thanks, Cynthia. Hello. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this because in our world of wealth management, ETFs, you know, finance, it's all about the investment outlook. So I'm really excited about the conversation today. Before we dive into that, though, for those unfamiliar with SoFi, can you tell us a little bit about the firm, where it stands in, in the ETF space, and, and any color you can offer for somebody who's new to SoFi? Yeah, absolutely. So SoFi is the one-stop shop for personal finance, and we're here to help our members. We, we call them members, not customers, in every aspect of their financial lives. So that could be borrowing, that could be spending, that could be saving, and that's definitely about investing as well, which is obviously where I spend most of my time. And we do that in order to help people find financial independence. So clearly a big part of finding financial independence revolves around investing and understanding all the options available to you. And ETFs are something that we offer to our members at zero or no cost on the Invest platform. They're a great way to get exposure to a broad basket of securities. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure, a little bit later. Uh, Or exposure to a particular theme. There's this kind of thematic investing wave that's taken over uh, in the last few years. And and you can find a lot of ETFs that are specific to a theme, things like the gig economy or an objective that you're trying to meet. You can find ETFs that are there to generate income on a regular basis. So we want to make sure that our members have all the tools available to them in investing. And then I'm here also to help educate them on all the things around markets and the economy. So as we're going to talk about investments and, and making the right choices at all you know, parts of the process, let's level set here. I'm really curious actually about your passion for investments in general. I understand you have an interesting personal journey into the space, you know, the, if nothing else, the Milwaukee to New York City <laughs> journey itself is fascinating. So, you know, tell us a little bit of, of how you ended up in this space, what drives you into the world of investments, what's what's your passion all about? Yeah, I mean, I, I majored in finance in college, um, largely because I liked math. I was I was one of those kids. I, I, I liked numbers. I enjoyed math. I was good at math. So I wanted to do something that had to do with numbers, but I also wanted to be in business. And then marrying the two together, it seemed like finance was the right idea. I actually thought that I wanted to be in corporate finance when I was younger. And when I first came out of school, I thought I wanted to be a CFO someday. And, and I didn't really know what that track looked like, but that was my lofty plan. I didn't really fall in love with investing until I was in my mid to late 20s. And I got my first job in investment management. I'd already been working for a few years in an operations role. And you know, I was, I was on the track that I thought I was supposed to be on. But once I was introduced to investment management, I was completely hooked on it. And there was so much to learn. And I think so many options out there on not only which direction to go in the career, but options for how to invest and what you can invest in and what different strategies look like. And, you know, some people might 
be intimidated by that, by the vast array of options and by how much it seemed like you had to learn about the industry. But for me, I was completely exhilarated. It seemed like it was something that was an endless learning journey. I could read every day and learn something. I could learn from the people that I worked with. I could learn from having conversations with everybody in the industry. And once I started to be able to educate other investors, which is now what I do at SoFi, and it's a lot of what I did at BNY Mellon as well, I was I was literally living the dream. I mean, that was that was my dream was to be able to communicate to the end investor and talk to people about it in a way that made it more approachable and in a way that excited them about the industry so that I could share some of that passion and excitement with others and with people that weren't exposed to this on a daily basis. So now I get to be ingrained in the investment world every day and I get to connect with people. So it's, it's a win-win. Um, the transition from, from Milwaukee to New York obviously was a, a stark transition. It was a, a huge culture change. And people ask me that all the time. They, oh my God, it must've been so difficult or it must've been so scary. I don't think it was scary. I think it was something that I really, really wanted. And it, it was very intentional. I, I wanted to move to New York at some point. And once it happened, I was elated. And you know, aside from the fact that it, it was a big cultural change and I had to get used to that, I think I was just so excited to be here. I felt like I was on vacation for the first six months. I was a tourist in my own town and I just, I fell in love with the city very quickly. So the transition was a big one. It was certainly stressful, but it was one that I gladly accepted. Yeah, although I will say that New York subway, it really is a cultural change in itself. So there's nothing little about learning to navigate <laughs> that system. That's for sure. That is very true. That is very, very true. The subway is something that I probably didn't figure out how to use until a year or two in. <laughs> and even still, I, I only go on one or two different lines. There's, there's certain... Uh, subway trains that I maybe have been on once or twice in my whole life. So it is tricky. And you know, it's extra tricky on the weekends because you can read the signs all you want and it still doesn't matter. Things change. The tracks are different. You end up on a different train than you thought you were on. So <laughs> you just have to kind of laugh it off and accept it as part of life in New York City. So before we talk about ETFs, uh, you know, as a rapper, I actually wanted to talk a little bit about just the investment strategy part of the business. So walk us through your process how, when you're trying to look for an investment outlook before you even decide which vehicles to use to implement that outlook, how do you go about identifying the key drivers in the market and really sizing up that opportunity in markets? What's the, the recipe for your process? Sure. So this answer will be different depending on the investor that you ask, because every investor has a different philosophy. And that philosophy and process causes them to start at a different point. So you might find investors that start with valuation and they might screen the entire universe based on valuation and come up with a smaller basket of securities that then they look at as potential investments and then they continue to whittle that down until they find what they want. I have been a strategist for many, many years and my process always starts with what's the environment that we're in. So what I mean by that is what kind of macroeconomic environment are we in? Where are we in the business cycle? Because there's investments that tend to work better at different points in the business cycle and depending on what the conditions are at that time. Some of those conditions that I would look at as well, things like the level of interest rates, uh, where's monetary policy right now? What do the sentiment measures look like? And that's consumer sentiment and business sentiment. What does consumer leverage and consumer spending look like? 
what does the labor market look like? And once you have a good grasp on what the current environment is, then you look at the market, at least me. This is what I do. <laughs> I shouldn't say no, you. No, yeah, absolutely. This is what I do. I look at the market and say, okay, does the market line up with where that environment is? Meaning, has the market priced in or reacted appropriately, in my opinion, to where we are in that environment? And if the answer is yes, then the market is appropriately priced, appropriately leveled. Uh, there's probably not a huge change that I would see coming in the short term. If the answer is no, it's possible that the market has to catch up. It's possible that the market is ahead of the economy and it's actually a signal. But basically, you look at how are things moving in the market right now and how have they already moved? And then you try to figure out what's next. And that's where the real opinion factor comes in, right? That's where mm -hmm. experience comes in. That's where you come up with an outlook where you've got all the information of, okay, this is what's happened over history. This is where we are right now in both the economy and the market. What do I think is the next phase? Are we on the cusp of a new phase in the business cycle? Are we on the cusp of a new economic regime? And if that answer is yes, then that changes the opportunity set in the market. And then you shift around the portfolio or you talk about different opportunities and different risks that might present themselves because of a change that's coming. So in, in terms of a process, it almost sounds like the first step of the process, in theory, the outcome should be kind of the same for everybody. You know, where we're in the business cycle, what the things, the employment, because these are data points. And then you start to kind of split up the outlook and the opinions based on that judgment of where's the market in relation to this current macro picture. And then later, where's the next step relative to where the market is? And that's in these two other phases where you can really get this, this range that we seem to be in right now, which is some people totally saying growth is the future and others saying, no, value is the next leg up. And uh, and, and seems there's a little bit of a, an everything goes at the moment because there's so many different interpretations going on. Is that a way to think about it? Yeah. And, and you made a very, very good point, or at least a, a big takeaway from what I just said, which is that we're all working from the same data right? A data point comes out, a report comes out, GDP is released, or for example, the, the Fed speaks, right? The Fed is going to speak today, for example. We're all working from that same data set. So we start in the same place and we're working with the same numbers. It's a matter of how do we analyze those numbers and what is our opinion or each investor's opinion of how the market might react to those numbers or how monetary policy officials might react to those numbers or how a certain company is affected by those numbers. And that's where the opinion comes in. And that's why you end up with varying opinions across the board. So there's a ton of strategists out there that do a, a very similar job to what I do. We all look at the same market data. We all look at the same economic data, but we might come up with very different bottom lines and we might come up with very different takeaways and actionable items. And again, that's a function of our experience. That's a function of how we feel the business cycle looks at that particular moment. That's a function of our interpretation of whether something is good or bad. And a good example of that right now is inflation. There's this huge debate over whether or not inflation is going to be transitory. Okay. You might hear people say, yes, it's going to be transitory. We're going to go back down to where we were before to very low inflation. You're going to hear somebody like me say, 
the hot numbers in inflation are transitory, but I still think we're going to settle into a place that's above where we were before. But I still don't think that's a problem. I think that that's actually representing healthy demand in the economy. Now, the answer to does that offer different opportunities or different risks is yes. But you see what I'm saying? We're all still Mm -hmm. working from the same starting point. We get to a different conclusion, even though we start at the same place. So do you have, and and we can get to this later, so you have some time to think about it, but, you know, I'd love to hear, do you have any anecdotes of just maybe a moment in this process where you were surprised or just, it was really interesting to see how the same data point led you to a completely different view than somebody else that you were watching or, or, and just very different outcomes in a way that really stood out to you. Just any, you know, battle scars that, that you can share on that front. Yeah. I mean, battle scars, we're, we're in one right now, the 10 year <laughs> treasury trading at a level that is so low that I, I can't even wrap my head around why. And, you know, all of us have been trying to wrap our heads around why I don't know that it's necessarily a battle scar in the sense that, you know, it's ruined an investment strategy or anything like that, but, but trying to explain the forces behind it. And you start to hear people say, well, the 10 year is low because there's fear in the market that there's going to be less robust growth than we expected, or that there's growth fears around the globe. China's growing slower than, than thought. And Europe is not going to come out of the pandemic as strong as we thought. So there's, there's, global growth fears and there's economic fears and the economic data is rolling over. And I looked at that and thought, really? I I don't, I don't feel that way. I don't think that there is a growth problem. I think that growth is going to be just fine. Did we hit maybe the peak of the mountain from the rebound and now growth has to settle out in a flatter slope? Sure. But does that mean that growth is going to be negative and that we're going to hit the skids in the economy? No, I don't think that at all. So that explanation didn't make sense to me. And it it was something that, you know, I I mean, you hear very experienced investors say things like that. And it does make you sit back and scratch your head. And I think a good investor, a good strategist questions their own opinions. And, you know, if there's something that you really feel strongly about, it's it's important to stay in that space and, and to hold true to that opinion or to that stance. But there are other times when you look at the data or you look at what's happening in the market or the economy and you say something just doesn't feel right about this or something about what I've been saying doesn't feel right anymore. And you have to be open to changing that point of view. You have to be flexible enough to say, you know what, I was wrong. Or you know what, I was right for a little while, I'm not right anymore, and I need to reevaluate this stance. And that's something that every investor would benefit from. Now, from in that context, you know, if you are creating an investment strategy, and, and say you are an investor trying to do it yourself, um, how do you know, or is it possible to know that what you've come up with, your interpretation of the facts and your assumptions and the way you're looking at the world, they make for a really robust strategy? How do you know you're on the right track and you can proceed with confidence? Or is this a constant exercise of evaluate, reset, evaluate, reset, and just make sure you're diversified? Both. (laughs) (laughs) And the first thing I would say, the first caveat I would make here is that every single investor should be okay with the idea that you're going to be wrong sometimes. 
And you're not always going to feel like, okay, this is working as I thought it would, or my portfolio is producing the results that I thought it would over this time period. You have no control over the way that assets move, right? All you have control over is the mix of assets that you put in your portfolio. And you have control over whether or not you change that mix over time. So it's not going to always feel like you did it right. That's okay. There are a lot of times that it doesn't feel like I did it right. And I've been doing this stuff for, I don't even know how many years now, 15, 16, 17 years, something like that, a long time. And you're not going to be right all the time. That said, I think one of the best ways to go about it is you have a long-term goal in mind for either the entire investment allocation or a portion of the investment allocation, whether that goal is to retire at a certain age or to retire financially independent or to retire and be able to buy a second home or to buy a business someday or whatever your goal is, you have a long-term goal. And then along the way to that goal, you have smaller goals and that's what keeps you on track. And those smaller goals should be achievable in the sense of, you know, at a certain two-year mark, you want to be at this place with, maybe it's a dollar amount, you want to be at this place dollar-wise or roughly at that place dollar-wise. If you don't meet that goal, then you change a little bit about what you're doing. Maybe you need to save a little bit more. Maybe you need to adjust your goal. Maybe your goal was unreasonable, right? Mm -hmm. So making sure that you have little goals along the way. Now, you might ask, how do I know if my goal is unreasonable? Something that I talk about a lot, and I actually wrote about it this week, so I have an article that'll come out tomorrow, and, and this it's mentioned in there. Instead of starting outlining your goals by thinking about what's the return target that I want to hit, how much, how much return do I want, do it by thinking about your entire portfolio as a risk budget. And then you have that portfolio to spend, you have that budget, that risk budget to spend until it's gone. Once that risk budget is gone... The output then is what your return expectations are, and that will keep you grounded. The reason that I like doing it that way is because if you do it the opposite way and you do it based on return projections or return expectations, you probably end up taking too much risk and you probably end up maybe with more concentrated positions or you end up with concentrated sector exposure. So for example, maybe you've got a lot of stuff in tech and communications and nothing in uh, materials and industrials. That's just a simple example. Because maybe over the last couple of years, the return expectations for tech and communications look amazing, right? Mm -hmm. So you look at that and you say, hey, if, if I can repeat that return pattern, I'll hit my goal in no time. Well, the reality of it is that the returns that we've seen over the last year or so are not normal. And the likelihood of that pattern repeating in the next two years is very small. So you end up with a higher risk allocation and maybe a disappointing result at the end of the period. So if you think about it from let's spend my risk budget where it makes sense, you probably allocate quite a bit more diversified portfolio. You probably end up feeling emotionally a little bit more calm about the portfolio because you know that you've taken the appropriate amount of risk. And then you've got a projected return or an expectation for return that's much more realistic. And if, it, if you beat your expectation, great. But the chances of completely missing it or being totally disappointed and ending up in a bad spot because you missed the goal are less. 
Yeah, it, it all goes back to, you know, in a way, behavior, right? So it's, uh, we cannot look away from the possibility of the quick buck and the quick return. And uh, uh, it's, it's really hard. It really takes discipline and really thinking of it, uh, like you said, the whole long-term investment objective versus, you know, what could a lot of times looks like short-term trading activity, really. Right. So it all comes down to just basic human behavior, which is what yeah, we always seem to end. It's hard to manage. Yeah. It's hard to manage that. And when you're when you're trying to manage your own money, it's even harder mm-hmm. because you're emotional about your own money. And it's a really difficult thing to get your arms around. So that's why I try to put some principles in place, the risk conversation, the diversification conversation, to make sure that people can do the best they can to remove that emotional force from investing. Mm-hmm. So Liz, before I let you go, I wanted to circle back to ETFs briefly here. So, you know, in your role, you were you really focused on the investment strategy side to the level that you're probably product agnostic. It's all about meeting that goal with the best vehicle. So from that perspective, you know, what stands out to you as a really powerful feature or what's really powerful about the ETF wrapper as a way to implement an investment view. I mean, we know it's typically low cost and transparent and all that that good stuff, but what really stands out to you in terms of the, the wrapper itself? Sure. So, I mean, first and foremost, everybody's at a different point in their investing journey. And everybody's also at a different dollar amount in their investing journey. If you're a beginner, you might not have enough money to spread around to multiple securities or enough to buy even one share of some of the stocks that you're interested in. So Alphabet, for example, or which is Google, right? Alphabet trades at more than $2,700 per share. Mm-hmm. So ETFs are a great way if you want broad market exposure ETFs are a great way to gain exposure to things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get exposure to, or at least full exposure to. They can also be a good way, I mentioned this before, to own a diversified basket without a super high minimum investment. So you don't have to have millions of dollars in order to build a diversified portfolio. You can get exposure to a diversified basket of securities. And and I mentioned this before too, I think one of the most important things today in ETFs is that there's a lot of thematic ETFs. So you can invest in ETFs that follow, like I said before, the gig economy. So if I has an ETF that follows the gig economy, you can invest in socially responsible ETFs. You can find an ETF for a lot of different things. There are semiconductor ETFs. You can get really specific. And if you have a very strong view on a certain theme or a certain part of the economy or a certain part of the market, you can express that now through an ETF. And it's a lot cheaper to do than it was before when you tried to buy maybe an active management account that was trying to express the same theme. I think it, ETFs just really match with what investors want today. And they're a low cost way to get exposure to what you want. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And that's why we keep seeing the ETF space growing like crazy, really. It's crazy mm-hmm. this year. Liz, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun. For more episodes of ETF Working Lunch or to learn anything else about ETFs, please check out ETF.com. If you would like more information on how to get involved with Women in ETFs, just check out womeninetfs.com. On behalf of the ETF.com team, I want to thank you folks for listening and we'll catch you next time. <music>